So, some of you folks who may be movie buffs um, can maybe appreciate this. Have you ever, or, or, or especially television, TV shows, have you ever watched um, a TV show over a number of years for a long time and you just really enjoy that show, right? Do you have any idea what the longest running TV show is and how many years it is? 28 years. Anybody want to guess what it is? Simpsons. Some people are hoping that would show it in, but anyway. Any idea of what the second longest one is? 20 years. There's two shows. For some of you, you'll kind of have to go back. Some of you weren't even born yet. Gunsmoke. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Some kids are going, what? I didn't think guns were good. Anyway, um, the other is Law and Order. And then there's a whole list, and I couldn't even put them all down, that have run over 10 years to about 19 to 20 years, from Lassie to CSI to The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. Anybody recall that show? To Dallas, to Bones, to Bonanza, to Cheers, to MASH, to Friends, to Happy Days, and the list goes on season upon season upon season upon season they have run. So I'd like you to turn to someone just tell someone what your favorite TV show was of a long-running season. Just take a second and do that. If you don't have someone near you, think about it. Okay, so um, that's not really the purpose of the message this morning, but I I thought I'd get you thinking about something that runs for a while and then it comes to an end. You ever come to it and also you find out that the show you've been watching, season upon season, year after year, is all that you you read in a paper, you hear announced, it's coming to an end. This is the final season. And you start watching and you're waiting for the final what? Episode. And you're wondering, how will they conclude this final season and this final episode? Well, in this book of Hebrews, what we've been looking at for the last nine weeks, and you could spend, I know some who have spent two years going through this, but as you go through these um, 12 chapters that we've been going through, there's one chapter more, which is a little bit different, so we'll talk about it, but the 12 chapters are basically the show. And we've been looking at episode after episode, and now we're at the final episode. This is the, the last one. And, and I think as you're reading through this and you're seeing all these different things about the better life, the better life, you begin to start to ask yourself, well, how is he going to end this? What's this final episode going to look like? And, and it is really kind of interesting because he has been saying throughout this whole thing, the better life is all about the better life that you find in Jesus. It's in him, in relationship to him. Everything in the Old Testament was really just a symbol that was pointing to the reality. They were just temporal shadows that were being cast by this substance of who God is in Jesus. And like a sign, you're not supposed to just stop at the sign. The sign is to point you to where your destination is. He says there's a better message in Jesus, a better messenger in Jesus, a better brother in Jesus, a better advocate, a better rest that you find in him, a better hope, a better promise, a better sacrifice, a better faith, a better character. Those were all the messages over the last nine weeks. And now he comes to this last one, this last and final one. 
And he basically says there's a better kingdom. And kingdom, again, you have to understand because we don't live in kingdom language. A kingdom was a place where someone ruled. And he's saying there is a better place where someone rules. And he's going to give you one last shot. And he's going to contrast the kingdom that was that we live in and the kingdom that we can or we do live in if we know Jesus. And so these verses can easily be broken down into three kind of segments. <clears throat> if you look at chapter 12, um, George last week went 1 through 13, where he ends it kind of, and he's starting kind of ramping it up by saying, fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith who endured the cross um, for the joy set before him. And it goes through all this, and he says, you know, um, get into the race, persevere, don't just give up, keep going. And now he's coming to this point in verse 14 where he's giving you his final words in order to encourage you to move forward. And he says in verses 14 through 17, he first gives a challenge. And then in verses 18 through 24, he talks about a reality, something to continue to remember. And then finally, he ends with a warning. And he basically is saying, live like Jesus. And if you're going to live like Jesus, you need to live in the awe of God, this kingdom. And then he ends with a warning, just don't refuse to listen to him, okay? So that's kind of the breakdown of this. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me because we're going to read this scripture. I'm not going to ask you to read it. I'm going to ask you to listen attentively and responsively as you can. Verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was the commandment. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you... You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, who, to the spirits of righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks, If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much more will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. And the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, I invite your Holy Spirit to help unpack all that. I ask that you would come and you would allow for my heart to just be in a place 
where what you have placed on it can be spoken and what is spoken you would use to hearts here who may and want to it could be distracted or whatever is going on in their heart it could be shame god i just pray that you would remove that so we could hear your tender voice of love and that we could live in this kingdom where you rule by love and that every inch of our being would be by the presence of the love that's in your heart would begin to just move out of every part of us, every cell in our body, any fear, so that we can be fully formed and functioning as you created us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So let me just first begin by just talking about this challenge, because what I think is interesting when he gets to verse 14 is he's been saying, persevere, here's what you need to do, you know, strengthen your arms. It's almost like get back in the race, don't give up, continue to just fix your eyes on this Jesus who loves you, this Jesus who began and birthed your faith, and this Jesus who will, will perfect the idea that he will fully form his faith in you. Wasn't that a wonderful thing? He's not talking about even fully forming our faith, he's talking about fully forming his faith in us. That's a huge difference. And so he, he, he begins this thing and he starts in verse 14. He says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone, to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. He, he's basically just saying, live like Jesus. Just live like Jesus. How did Jesus live? He made every effort. And the word every effort, make every effort, is really the idea of pursue. You know, with all that you can, pursue. Put your eye towards the goal. Make every effort to live at peace with everyone. So it's a pretty simple thing. This is how Jesus lived. With peace with all around him, as much as he could, and holy. Holy in this sense, that his heart would be pure. So pursue peace and pers- with others and, and pursue purity is almost what he's saying. And the result is, if you do those two things in both relationships and in relationship to your heart to God and the way that you live with regard to purity... You will see God. Now, it's not that he's just saying you're going to all of a sudden have this vision of God. What he's actually saying is you will begin to see God at work in and through you. Does that make sense? He's saying when you begin to take and and make it your goal to pursue peace with others, he's purely kind of saying, because he explains this again in verse 14 and verse 15, because listen to what he says in, in verse 15. He says, See to it, and he uses a, an unusual word here, which means, in only once here, watch over each other, kind of like be your brother's keeper, so that no one falls short of the grace of God. That you're always living, not in the fear side of the equation, but in the love-grace side of the equation with one another. And part of living in the grace side of the equation means that you will not allow, it says, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So he's making a simple point that if you will live in such a way that you have the same heart that God has... And then if you allow his desire to be your desire, you will begin to see his actions through your actions. You will actually not just be seeing a picture of God, you'll be seeing God in your life. Because if you're connected to him the way Jesus did, you're going to be pursuing with others a relationship as best you can that is towards peace. And, and really, when you think about peace, as you go through all the Bible, the heart of the Bible, the, the peace that even begins the process, because there's a process to it. We don't have time to go through all that. But what, what it looks like is forgiveness. 
The, the, the seed that grows into bitterness that really causes problems in your own heart and life and it begins to affect your attitudes, the way you look at things, the way that you treat people, the way that you work, all those things begins with some resentment. And we all kind of like to hold resentment because we live in fear and we want to protect ourselves. And so in one way to protect ourselves is we hold on to that. And Jesus made it really clear on the cross, praise God that he did this, that he forgave and didn't hold resentment and bitterness to infect and affect his life with others, including you and me. Now you think about that, that's a really big deal. He's, he's, he's making this simple point that bitterness is a roadway, in a sense, for, for all kinds of negative things. In fact, you will not see God at work. You will not see him at all when you live in that way. So when you think about it, as you think about relationships with others, and, and I know that when we, we talk about forgiveness, um, it, it's a difficult topic because... Um, we're not saying that when someone has done something, you're saying what you did is right. We're, we're not saying that it's excusable, nor that there aren't appropriate boundaries that may need to be in place to build trust and to build a relationship with another person. It is something you do. It's not about them at all. I was at the prayer breakfast this last Thursday, and um, it was really uh, uh, this part that I really enjoyed was listening to Gordy and Nancy Engel, who shared their story. Some of you know him, the owner of the foursome, and, and how their family, um, their, their daughter and son in law, and their kids were just creamed over by a, a truck, a big truck, it just, and they were killed instantly. And, and they, you have all kinds of questions. God, what are you doing? Because they were preparing to go to Japan. They'd given their lives to them. And it just kind of like, this doesn't make sense. Is this how you handle your servants? And they were having to process through that. And at one point she said very clearly, you know, forgiveness necessarily isn't easy. But she realized it's something I had to do. I had to forgive the truck driver. Because forgiveness was about her ability um, to be in a place where that pain and the consequence of that does not continue to attack her through that action. And it's a simple statement of saying, God, I'm going to give this to you because I'm just not good enough to judge this right now. I don't understand all that's going on. I don't, I, I'm not saying this is right. I'm not, not letting this guy off the hook because he's still on your hook. Right? But he's off mine. So how many people do you have hooked? I think about that because I think, you know, it's so hard to give forgiveness, isn't it? It's really hard to live at peace with everyone. It takes a lot of effort. I don't like to give that much effort. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you let, you know, I just think about, thank God that Jesus wasn't like us. You know how often when you get in a place, you know you've done something wrong, and you just go, oh God, please forgive me. Oh, please forgive me. Ever in that place? Oh, God, please. And then he does, and you know he does. And there's people that could be around you going, oh, I just, you know, please forgive me. There's this incredible thing when you live in a relationship where people begin to give that forgiveness, and, and in doing so, it allows for room for actual relationship to grow. And sometimes it grows because people take responsibility for their wrong, and in that process, you begin to start moving together. Do you have your wife or your husband or a kid or a parent on a hook? Maybe a coworker, maybe someone who's harmed you. 
So he says, live like Jesus, pursue him, give all your effort. And then the second thing he moves to is he talks about, he says holiness, and then without holiness, he's talking about holy in this idea. Holy is not the idea of better than thou. It's not, you know, you you go to church and you're doing all these kind of activities. It's more about the state of your heart. And and it's more the idea that you're living a life that's separated and given unto God. Um, Barclay, a commentator, says it this way. Although a person lives in the world, the person who is holy must, must always in one sense be different from the world and separate from the world. Our standards aren't the world's standards. It's this idea that we don't live any longer for ourselves and our own desires, but we begin to say, God, we want to make every effort to know, follow, and become like you so that your heart, your desires, and your actions through us allow for not only you get the chance to see God at work, but others do as well. That's kind of what he's saying here. Um, and, and, he, and he elaborates this in verse 16 through 17 as the author continues by explaining what purity looks like. He says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this next week. But, and he goes on, he says, or is godless like Esau. And the, and the word godless is a pretty simple word. It means that what you're doing is not God. Okay? And, and he, he goes on, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Simply, he moves from be at peace with everyone to part of what living a pure life means that you begin to deny yourself certain desires, that you live in a place of discipline where you begin to allow the character of God to form you so you can see God work in your life. Esau, though, is a great example because he let his hunger in the moment rule his heart and he missed the blessing of God, right? So here's this guy, he's hungry as can be and there's this for a little bit of soup I don't even like soup that much for a little bit of soup he said I'll, I'll give you all the rights and blessings and all the inheritance so I can just have this little bit of soup and then it says afterwards here's what he says in scripture as you know when he wanted to inherit the blessing because inherit is a good word. It means you were faithful. If you're not faithful, you're not going to... If someone is, is, is not faithful, you're not going to turn over a job to them. He says, he wanted to inherit the blessing, and he was rejected, even though he sought the blessing, even though he said, I'm so, so sorry. Now again, forgiveness is possible. His relationship with God can be there. But he, here's the key statement. He could not change what he had done. Ever think about that? That our actions actually have consequences. There are sometimes a finality to what we do. I think his, his point here, the bottom line is, um, live at peace with others, pursue it. And on the other hand, pursue as best you can to reign in your desires so the character of God can show up in you so that his character can flow through you so that he can be seen in your life and the lives of others. And so what he is saying here, the bottom line is that our consequences have, um, have results Our actions at times have an impact that can't be changed. Undisciplined desires, is the way I wrote it, have undesirable outcome. Think about that. Undisciplined desires can have undesirable outcomes. For instance, have you ever ate too many pieces of chocolate pie? You just can't undo that feeling, can you? Or, or, you know, you had that one more plate at Thanksgiving and now you're laying on the couch, like, oh. There's just some things you can't do. The other, the other day, I don't know what's going on. I have a 2004 car, um, got it from my dad, paid really little money for it. I'm not a big car guy. I, I, 
I mean, I like cars, but I mean, it's not, so here's this car. It's in pretty good shape. And I don't know what was going on, but in the last year or so, I have been a little bit careless. And like one time when I was up with the temp- up for a retreat, I pulled the car too much up into these rocks and I made a mark there and I said, oh shoot, you know, yeah. it's not like I can go, oh, be good again. And, and then just a couple months ago, I don't know what it is. I've pulled out of my, dra- my garage many times. We have to park kind of tight, and so I'm pulling out. And I did it because anybody ever notice I'm almost kind of a little bit in a hurry? <laughs> I, I, I actually talk in a hurry. I remember when I spoke over in Japan this last fall, the guy, the translator watched our live stream, and he says to me, I'm so, he was saying, I'm thankful I have the manuscripts. He goes, because you speak like machine gun. And so... <laughs> So sometimes I get in a hurry, and you see me running down the halls. So I got to go and fix. I'm going to get to it, and so I'm pulling out of the driveway. And I, how many times? And, and I all of a sudden hear, and I look over at my side view mirror, and there, it. I thought the whole thing was going to come off, but thankfully they kind of move like this. Well, I moved it. Well, part of it cracked off. So if you see my car, it's, it's the white one with the little cracked off on the passenger side mirror. I say all that because I. Everything inside of me, in tears almost, was crying, saying, oh, I wish I could undo that. And he's making a very simple point. That even though you live in the grace of God and you live that way, you have to understand, when you make mistakes, you can be forgiven. But there are some things that happen that just have consequences. So the living in the grace of God doesn't say, oh, I can do whatever I want, doesn't matter, God will heal and fix it for me. Yes, God can forgive you, he can actually heal relationships, but there are things that you do that have consequences. For instance, if a young man loses his purity or a young woman loses her virginity, I mean, if in the heat of an argument you say something that is so cutting to someone, there could be forgiveness, but somehow some of those things remain. There are some things you can't get back. If you prioritize your work over your family, your child is only two once. And I think he's saying to us, folks, is really, when it comes to these things, and it comes to our very own desires, really check them. Take a look at it. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look what he did, who endured the cross and the shame and for the joy, because he knew that at some point this checked desire would pay off. So I just ask you, is your marriage, you may be in a situation worth destroying. Is your family's reputation worth a few extra thousand dollars? Is your integrity worth losing? Is that selfish desire and that temporary pleasure worth the pain? And the next reality he moves to is in verse 18 through 25. He says to live like Jesus. You say, well, so how do you live like Jesus? How do you stay in the grace of God? How do you, how do you stay in this place? If we're living the kingdom, we're supposed to live in the love of God. How do you stay in that place? Well, you have to come back to some realities. And one of the realities is what you see here in these passages of Scripture. He, he basically is reminding them of how they once lived. He says, you remember how it used to be? You don't want to live that way anymore. Well, you want to live in this place. This has been provided for you. So live over in this kingdom. But we have a problem of continually moving back into the way we used to live and be. And the reason for that is because we grow up in homes with imperfect parents. We have all kinds of things imprinted upon us, things that we have made choices about. There is a design where temperaments are certain ways. All those things can work against us. 
And the whole thing about living like Jesus is allowing God to take the fears and the things that we're doing. Because most of us as children don't grow up as a little baby with this great plan of what you want to become, right? You're sitting in the, in, in the crib and all you're doing is it's your survival cries. Just feed me. Just change me. Just pick me up. And when those aren't met, met you, you then have this fear that kind of begins to creep in. And so many times when we grow up, we grow up in an environment of fear. And, and what Jesus is calling to us is to live in this new place, this new place of grace and love and mercy and kindness, which is in the realm of God. But we slip back to this. So he wants to say, I want you to remember something. And it's very important because he says, you, you haven't come to. And in, and in the old manuscripts in this, in this passage of scripture, um, it says... Um, it says, you have come to that that you can't touch. It doesn't say in the old manuscripts even a mountain. That was placed in there by some other older manuscripts and it's stuck because it makes sense because you're talking about two different mountains here. But he, he actually left that word out because I think he wants people to realize you don't come to this God who is like this. And so here's, I, I love the way the Passion Translation, this Brian Simmons, put, he, he puts it this way. As we approach God, so he actually goes back to some of the old manuscripts. We leave the natural realm behind, the flesh, what we, what we grew up in. For we are not coming as Moses did to a physical mountain with its burning fire, thick clouds of darkness and gloom, and with a raging whirlwind. We are not those who are being warned by the jarring blast of a trumpet and the thundering voice warning the people to keep their distance, the fearful voice that they begged to be silent. If you, there's, this is so rich with the Old Testament, this whole thing here. So can't even give you all the, the background of that. They couldn't handle God's command that said, if so much as an animal approaches the mount, he is to be stoned to death. And this astounding phenomena, just think about it. This astounding phenomena, Moses' witness caused him to shudder with fear, and he could only say, I am trembling in fear. Even Moses, the most holy, humble, and acceptable saint of God, when he saw God, was so terrified that he shook with fear. It would maybe be some of us to say this way, if it was in our day, Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, when they got close to God in their sin and in who they were in their own merit and strength, as good as they were, when they got close to them, without that sin taken care of, they just were scared to death. My memory, I remember one time I had a traffic ticket, and I've shared this, I think, before, but I'll just kind of touch on it. I remember going when I was in college to defend myself for a traffic ticket that I felt I was right about, and... Anyway, just so you know, story, I, I was, the judge did give me a pass on it, but I don't think he even gave me a pass so much on anything about me. I think he was, he could see how scared I was. I, here I am, I'm, I'm standing like in Chicago, Cook County, there's like 30 people in front of me, and I'm at the end, there's one guy behind me, and everybody is saying, he's saying, no, 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 and these people, are, some of them are bold and brazen, I, they must have been up there many times. This was my first time, and I'm a college kid. I get up there, and he says, um, so what happened? I, honestly, I couldn't talk. This is a human judge. And I even felt that I was in the right. So this is a picture of God that you can live with. But here's the reality. The author writes, you have come to this God. And in contrast, he says this three times. But you have come 
You have come. You have come. You have already come. You are living in this. So don't give it up. Don't step back. See, one of the great ways to live in a way where you live in peace with others and you're motivated to do it and you live checking your desires for the joy that's set before you is because you remember what you used to be like without Jesus, without him in your life. Just remember back the way you live. Just remember what it means to live in your sin. Remember your view of how life was. But now, he says, you've come to one And the awe has taken the fear and driven it out because you have experienced God's incredible grace and goodness. And if you haven't experienced it, it's available for you right now. And he says these words. By contrast, we have already come near to God in a totally different realm, the Zion realm, for we have entered the city of the living God, which is the new Jerusalem in heaven. We have joined the festal gathering of myriads of angels in their joyful celebration. He's not saying later. He's saying you live in this kingdom now. Catch this. You today are living in this kingdom. By faith, you begin to say, this is true. I'm going to trust this. This is my choice to believe the grace of God is mine and proficient. It's been revealed to me. I will live in this, and I will someday live in it forever. And as members of the Church of the Firstborn, all our names have been legally registered as citizens of heaven, and we have come before God who judges all and who lives among the spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect in his eyes, and we have come to Jesus who has established a new covenant with his blood sprinkled upon mercy seat, blood that continues, catch this, that continues to speak from heaven. The idea is it's, a, it's, it's not a past thing. It's a past, present, and future idea here. It continues to speak from heaven forgiveness. And that's a better message than the Abel's blood because when Jesus' blood spilt, it said you're forgiven. When Abel's blood spilt, it says here, the blood that cries from the earth cries justice. When he was killed by his brother, the cry of that blood up to God was, there needs to be justice. And the cry of the blood of Christ is one that says, in Jesus, your sins have been cared for and taken, and and in him, justice is met, and you are forgiven. So here's the reality. Here's the reality. One of the ways I think it's helpful to live like Jesus, at peace with others, living out of a pure heart in order that you can see God's actions through you, is just remember how God treats you. It's really that simple. Just remember what it was, and that's what he's doing. This is the last big contrast. Remember what it was, guys? You didn't want to come near him? Now you're not going to come near him. His presence lives in you. And so he makes this point, and he says, here's the reality. And, and here's, here's what kind of grabs you right at the very end, the warning. This, you know, have you ever watched those shows where they come to the final episode, and you're trying to figure out how it ends, and there's some that end really, really well. Anybody watch when you go, boy, I really love that ending? Well, this one really takes you a little bit on a turn, because he doesn't end like with this real happy note, almost. He ends with a warning because he's calling out to any person who's refusing God. And he says, I just want to share with you this warning. I remember watching, um, it was at Bob Newhart show. It was one of my favorite kind of endings. It was the second one. They were in New Hampshire, and he's this guy over this uh, bed and breakfast place. And they get to the very end of that show. He had done a show before. That was the, another Bob Newhart show, another series before, where he was a therapist, etc. He end, The show ends with 
the two, the couple in that first show, lying in bed, and he goes, I just had this dream that I had been in this bed and breakfast place running it for, you know, is, yeah, okay, you didn't see it. Well, anyway, it was really good. Um, I won't be using that second service. Anyway, um, here's what he does. Here's the warning. Here's what's really important. It's like an intervention. God would prefer to draw you to him in his love, but he also says if you choose to stand in unforgiveness, you choose to stand in a place where you're going to live your life motivated by fear, if you're going to choose to stand apart from me, basically the best I can do, because he's so, God is so much a gentleman. He has created you with a will, and he's not going to trample on your will. He so loves you that he's given you a choice, and he lets you have that choice, even if to the point where if you say, I don't want to be with you. I want to live this way. The best he can do for you, catch this, the best he can do for you is hell. That's not popular today. You have a child, and the child is rebellious, and the child, or maybe you were. The only way, no parent can do anything to change a person's heart and will. All you can do is draw them to you. The prodigal son runs away, and the father, instead of disowning him and doing all these things, keeps grace open and waits, and he looks, and he looks, and he looks, and he's waiting. He's waiting for that son. Oh, but the son, as it says in the, in, in the Bible, come to his senses and choose and turn and come back. And, and at one point, the father's out there one day again at the edge, come down, and he sees there this little dot, and he sees it getting bigger, and he sees that son coming closer and closer, and his son comes to him and says, I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve the, um, to even be one of your sons. I'll be your servant, etc." And And he, he gives him everything. Out of grace. And I just, I have to, because this ending is really different than what you might think. This ending is an incredible call to do not live your life in fear. Because when you live your life in fear, it controls you and you are controlled by something that will just bring destruction. Open your heart to God. And let his love begin to flow in and through you as you pursue peace with others, as you seek to live a pure heart and check those desires so that the very character of God can be formed in you so that you can see God through your desires and actions touch other people's lives. Let's pray. Father. We just want to thank you for this incredible gift of your love and your grace that you have given to us. And in a moment as we take this meal together, it is a reminder that we didn't provide it. It wasn't through our own works. It wasn't through our own merit. You pursued peace with us. You, through Jesus, forgave us. And this blood, represented by the cup, and your body, which was broken for our sin, speaks forgiveness. Father, we come to you in holy reverence and awe, giving thanksgiving. And we thank you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen.